0: Well, good morning to all those of you who are gathered with us today. Welcome. It's a privilege to worship our great God. I invite you to turn in his holy word to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. The book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. We will lightly touch on chapter 7, but devote the bulk of our attention this morning to chapter 8, which centers on the people of God gathering around his word, fittingly, and responding to it. So, Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's hear God's word together. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him uh, stood Metiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maseah, and on his right hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadonah, Zach- Zechariah, and Meshelem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Acab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelitha, Azariah, Josabed, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, uh, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths uh, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had, uh, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God, they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule." May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not a silent God. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. In love, you make yourself and your purposes known to us. Father, thank you that you've not allowed us to stumble through this life confused and uncertain of your character and your purpose. Thank you for speaking to us. And Father, even as we acknowledge the great privilege that we have in having your Word, we also confess our unrighteousness in neglecting it. Father, so often we are half-hearted when it comes to listening to your Word. There are so many other things that are of greater interest to us. Father, we confess our ingratitude. We confess our unbelief. And we ask for grace to delight in your Word. We pray that it would be the joy of our hearts and that we would drink deeply from its truth daily that we might encounter you. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be pleased to use the message this morning, the truth of your word, to cause cause us to be a people committed to you and therefore utterly committed to your word. Bless this time we ask, amen. Uh, Several years ago, I went out to a cafe with an acquaintance. Uh, This individual was on the periphery of church life, Christianity. Uh, he'd occasionally attend uh, church services at a big church in, in the valley right, and go to community group meetings. Uh, but one of the things that troubled him about Christians is their unyielding emphasis on the Bible. Their constant attendance of Bible studies, they're constantly listening to sermons. Uh, how many times do you need to read a book, he asked, before you know what it says? Read it, close it, and go out and do some real good in the world. Action, practical action in the world is what is needed. Certainly I wouldn't disagree with that, that action is needed. Uh, But his objection failed to recognize uh, that the word of God is utterly central to the identity and existence of the church. A church that decides that it's gonna de-emphasize scripture or neglect it altogether and devote its time and attention strictly to doing good is no longer the church. It's not just that it's a different kind of church, a church that emphasizes good, you know, doing good in the world, to the extent that it rejects scripture, it ceases to be the church. The community of God, the people of God, the church, are defined by a commitment to hearing, understanding, and obeying scripture. Without that commitment, you just have a group of people. You don't have the people of God. It's a bit like you know, having a four-sided triangle. A four-sided triangle is not another kind of triangle. It is by definition not a triangle because a triangle has three sides. And by definition, the church is the people committed to hearing, believing, and submitting to scripture. It defines who we are. It, it, It builds us up. It is the word of God that brings the church into existence. We wouldn't have spiritual life if it wasn't for the message of the gospel, the good news concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's that message that creates the church It's that message that sustains the church in doing the will of God. It's that message that enables the church to be a distinct and holy people that reflect the character of God. The word of God is utterly central to its existence. And we see that taught very clearly here in this passage, especially Nehemiah 8. We've noted how Nehemiah has come to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and he has succeeded at long last. But the rebuilding effort doesn't stop with the wall. It continues with the people of God. Having built the wall, the people now need to be rebuilt. And at the heart of that rebuilding work is the proclamation of the Word. This morning, as we look at this passage, uh, chapter 8 especially, I want us to note four things. First, they listened to God's Word attentively. They listened attentively. Second, they listened together Third, they listened to understand. And finally, the result of their listening was joy. Now, before we look at the people's response to the law, let's take a moment to remember the context. As I've noted, Nehemiah came to the city of Jerusalem to lead the Israelites in a construction project uh, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we saw last week how he succeeded, despite the opposition of his enemies, in doing just this. And at the beginning of chapter seven, Nehemiah makes further arrangements for the city. He appoints two leaders, uh, his brother Hanani, and another man named Hananiah, the governor of the castle uh, charge over Jerusalem. Now, uh, undoubtedly he chose Hananiah partly because of his competence, administrative skill, but the criterion that scripture gives us is that uh, Hananiah was chosen because he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. It wasn't his competence, essentially, that caused him to be fit for that job, it was his character. And whatever else God's people look for in their leaders, and of course, competence is a part of it, they should look for a man who fears God. Character is what counts, and that's what Nehemiah looked for in appointing a leader. And then Nehemiah also gives them instruction for how to keep the city safe. He tells them to appoint guards, uh, the doors of the city should be opened late in the day and closed early. These are provisions made for the protection of the city. And then there's another problem. Uh, behind those walls that have recently been rebuilt, there's a sparse population. Uh, verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had uh, been rebuilt. Now, the, the phrase that's translated, no houses had been rebuilt, uh, could be translated Few houses had been rebuilt. Uh, But the problem is there aren't a lot of people living in Jerusalem as was intended. Apparently at this time, it was easier for people to live in the villages, in the countryside, and there was a reluctance to move to Jerusalem. That involved some kind of hardship. And so Nehemiah finds the genealogy, the same genealogy, incidentally, that we find in Ezra chapter 2. The genealogy that describes the lineage of the people who came back from exile. You will recall that the Israelites had been exiled, taken into captivity by their enemies, and then 70 years later, God worked things out so they came back to the land. In Ezra chapter two, the function of the genealogy is to establish continuity between those who were taken away in exile and those who came back, same people. Of course, you would need to establish that continuity if you're gonna show that God had been faithful to his people. Same people. Now, the function of the genealogy in Nehemiah 7 is slightly different. Uh, Nehemiah appeals to this genealogy to determine who's gonna come to the city of Jerusalem, uh, to come to some sort of equitable arrangement of those who are going to be required to live in the city of Jerusalem and not the countryside, so that is its function. Now, a few days after the walls are built, the people of God, the Israelites, come to the city of Jerusalem, and they gather not in the temple, Uh, presumably the temple would have been too small for such a large gathering. Also, there were uh, women and children present that would have been restricted in the temple. So they all gather in this open square in the city. And one of the central characters in our passage is actually the people. Over and over again in chapter 8, we notice the people collectively doing things. The first thing that the people do on this occasion, this was uh, incidentally uh, a feast day, this was the first day of the seventh month. This was the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, This is a day of joy, a day of rest, a day in which the law of God would be read, and it anticipated the Feast of Booths as that we'll look at in a moment. So a joyful occasion, they gather, and the people say to Ezra, the Bible scholar, bring out the law. Let us hear the words of God. It's interesting that the initiative is with them and not with Ezra, and that speaks to their enthusiasm. They're not here because they have to be here. They're here because they want to hear the words of God. And we're told that this assembly comprised not just men and women, but all who who could understand what they heard. And that, we assume, is a reference to children. Uh, Families were gathered on this occasion to worship God and hear His word. Little children were present next to their mothers and fathers. And one one of the things that shows us is that when our children come of age, uh, we want them to be sitting next to us when we assemble for worship, that they might learn how to worship God and that they might be instructed in his word. The church father Tertullian notes that Christians aren't born, they're made. They have to be trained in the ways of God. They have to be instructed. One of the best ways to help children understand how to worship God and receive his word is when they come of age, whenever that happens to be, have them sit next to you. Have them take in the word with you. Have them see how God's people worship him and that's one of the essential ways in which they are formed and taught to worship God. So there are families here uh, prepared to hear the law of God. And there is like a marathon reading. Uh, Verse three, we're told that they started uh, early morning until midday. It could have been as much as six hours maybe a few hours less than that, Uh, God's people were gathered together and they just listened. And note that they listened attentively, verse 3. They were attentive to the book of the law. Their attention didn't wander. Now, as distracted modern people, I think that's somewhat astonishing. But they were able to sit there for hours and hear God's word read and uh, taught, and they were enraptured. Uh, The men that are identified in this passage in verse 4, alongside Ezra... Uh, we're probably helping uh, with the reading. So Ezra would read a, a little bit and some of these lay leaders would then come maybe on the platform and then they would read. So this was a team effort as it were. And there may have been pauses for the law to be uh, taught to the people. The crucial thing is that they were attentive to the word that they were taught. And not only were they attentive, but there is a palpable reverence about this gathering. Uh, when the scroll is brought onto the platform and it's open, notice what the people do they stand. And when Ezra prays, there's this response from the people, amen, amen, right? They lift up their hands to God in adoration. They're not hearing simply the voice of a man. They're hearing the voice of the creator, the voice of Almighty God. And so they come with a sense of profound awareness that they are not in the presence merely of men, but of God. Notice those three things about their response. They heard eagerly, reverently and attentively. That's how we should respond to God's word. Those are the attitudes with which we should gather with God's people. We should come eagerly. It's not simply something we have to do because God's word requires us. It's something we get to do. We get to hear the words of God read to us and expounded for us. And we should come with a sense of expectation. God has a word for me today so I'm gonna come ready to hear that word. We should come eagerly, we should come reverently. What scripture says, God says. Everything the Bible says to us, God himself is speaking to you. And recognizing that scripture has its source in God should cause us to respond the way the Israelites did, with the humility, with the recognition that we are encountering the Creator in the words of Scripture. We should be humble and reverent and ready to believe everything it says and ready to do everything that it commands. The right posture is not for us to stand over Scripture and decide what I like and what I don't like. That's not reverent. The right posture I think Calvin, the theologian, the reformer summed it up well. I offer my heart, Lord, promptly and sincerely. It's that attitude. It, it, Lord, I'm ready to go where you send me. I'm ready to believe everything you say. That's the attitude with which we should approach Scripture and receive, uh, receive it as it's proclaimed. And finally, note that they, they listened attentively. They were focused. They weren't checking their watches. They weren't you know, on their smartphone checking the, the score of the game or the text message that somebody gave them or preoccupied with the work that they had to do next week. No, they were in the moment, eager, attentive. Their undivided attention was given to the Word of God. And we should recognize that the way we listen to God's Word affects how much profit we get from it. If we come to church exhausted, passive, half-hearted, rolling our eyes you know, at every, every mistake the preacher makes, Uh, we're not gonna profit much from the proclamation of God's word. But if we come enthusiastically, reverently, eager, attentively, uh, we will hear the voice of God and what he has for us. Now, I I recognize that uh, attentiveness is a joint endeavor. The, The preacher has some responsibility here. You better work hard at trying to understand the text and say it clearly. And of course, the preachers have their good days and bad days, right? So the minister has a responsibility to proclaim the word of God faithfully and clearly, but you also have a responsibility to listen attentively. And the extent to which you do, you profit from the proclamation of God's word. Let me emphasize attentively. Let me stress that to a uh, distracted modern audience. We live in a very distracted age, don't we? Uh, Our attention is constantly being yanked from one thing to another. The smartphone is constantly vibrating, some new text that someone has sent, notification that someone has emailed me. We're like a startled squirrel dashing from one bush to another, right? Uh, we, we can't focus on like more than a paragraph of reading at any given time. We're inwardly fidgety. And that's actually not a small thing, spiritually speaking. That inward noise, that distraction, makes it difficult for us to hear the word of God. To, to hear God's word we have to be capable of deep concentration, patient, slow, disciplined reflection. Like a buffalo, not a squirrel, right? Steady, plodding in the same direction. If we're gonna profit from scripture, that's the, that kind of deep concentration is not just a luxury, it's a necessity. Uh, one thing I recommend is that each day you carve out a little bit of time where you put away the smartphone and the computer and it's just you and God and His Word in silence. And devote the focused attention to God's Word that it deserves. And when you come on Sunday morning, I know there's a million things going on in your lives, seek to be attentive. And in this connection, let me, let me say, this is something that, that burdens me. I think uh, far too many parents uh, make the mistake of diminishing their child's capacity to be attentive through overexposure to screens from an early age. Uh, Children at a young age are growing up, you know, playing video games, watching movies incessantly. And that kind of overexposure to screens diminishes that child's capacity to sit with the Bible open in their lap and listen to God. Uh, Anthony Esselin is a Catholic cultural critic, wrote this great book called uh, 10 Ways to Destroy Your Child's Imagination. He says, if if you're interested in destroying your child's imagination, here's a bit of advice. Uh, Expose them incessantly to screens. That kind of overexposure is certain uh, to diminish their capacity to sit and look at clouds and trees and read books and engage in conversation. Uh, As parents, we don't want to buy some peace and quiet for ourselves by destroying our children's development. Uh, Be wise in how much screen time you give to your children. Enable them to grow up to be able to give uh, attention to the word of God. So they listened to God's word on this occasion attentively, reverently, eagerly. And they also listened to note together. It's not just a private devotional time. This is God's people assembled in his presence hearing his word. What a beautiful precursor to the church. Uh, They are gathered on this occasion to hear God's word together and to respond to that word together. And this is crucial. This shared experience of listening to and responding to the word of God is essential for our our identity and formation as a community. God has called us to be a holy, distinct people. He's called us to be a godly counterculture in a dark world that reflects his character. Christian community should be marked by love by a readiness to burden yourself to relieve the burdens of your brother or sister. Sacrificial love ought to be the culture of Christian community. A deep commitment to one another's welfare. And joy ought to characterize our community. We are the people whose sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. We are the people who have the hope of eternal life and a great savior in Jesus. If we don't have reasons to rejoice, no one does. So a Christian community should be, should be marked by joy as well as love. And that happens. We are made into a community marked by love and joy as we together gather to hear the Word of God and respond to it. It's that act of sh- sharing in the experience of hearing the Word that causes us, step by step, to be a countercultural community. A community marked by love and by joy. In addition, it's that experience of sharing in God's word together that knits us together in community. Like, What's the basis of our fellowship? I mean, we all come from different walks of life, uh, different levels of education, different interests, different you know, economic levels. What's uniting us this morning? It's Jesus. It's a commitment to hearing the word of God and living according to it. Uh, you may have had this experience, you, know, you, you get together for a Bible study with individuals, different points in life, um different levels of education different interests the only thing they have in common is the fact that they're there to study scripture and you find as there there is this common pursuit of god's word you find that love flourishes community flourishes as you aim not in the first instance at community but at knowing and obeying the word of god the extent to which we pursue god and scripture is the extent to which we will find ourselves bound to one another in love what that means practically is that the local church should exhibit a culture of Bible speaking. We're speaking God's words to one another. It should be normal. Like when two, two members of CBC get together, it should be normal for those two members to talk about Jesus. Here's what Jesus is teaching about himself. And we ought to build one another up in that continuous conversation about the word of God and about Christ. Talking about Jesus should be as easy as talking about like your favorite sports team. It's not, you, you don't have to like strategize to do that, right? There's no wringing of hands to talk about the sons. You just do it because it's on your heart and you're passionate about it. Talking about scripture should be like that. It should be the joy of your heart and it comes pouring out of you. Here's how the apostle Paul puts it in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. as to dwell in you first. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. My prayer and desire for CBC is we'd, we'd be that kind of church. But there's a culture of speaking God's life-giving word to one another. And one thing that all of us should aim at is getting better at doing that. We're not all teachers, we don't, have all this, we don't have the same gifting necessarily, but all of us should have a basic competence in sharing scripture with other believers for their good. So, they heard attentively, they heard together, and finally, they heard or they listened to understand what was being said. Notice all the provisions that are made to make sure everybody gets what's going on. First of all, notice the precursor of the modern pulpit, Nehemiah 8, some kind of platform, we don't know exactly what it looked like like, tower of some sort, okay? Scrolls put on the pulpit so that people can hear the word and and give it a place of prominence and honor. Uh, And then we're told that these Levites, apparently they, they went around in between the readings explaining the Bible to people. Here's what it means, here's how it applies to your life. Notice the steps that were taken to ensure what? to ensure that they knew what it said, that they got their head around a body of information or a body of knowledge. Every effort was made to make sure they understood the Bible and what it said. Now, of course, we don't want to stop there. We don't want to just know the Bible for its own sake. We want to know the Bible for the sake of transformation, for the sake of being more like Jesus, and we want to know it for the sake of experiencing God, right? having communion with God but the higher doesn't stand without the lower, right? Communion with God, personal renewal and transformation, is grounded in an ever-increasing knowledge of the contents of scripture. That may sound kind of unexciting, but it's the biblical perspective. As we we grow in our knowledge of God's truth and his will for us, so also we become more like Christ, assuming we pursue knowledge for the right reason, And, and our communion with the Lord grows. Pursue a knowledge of God's Word that you might have a deeper fellowship with Him and reflect the character of Christ more. And certainly this shapes the priorities, or should shape the priority of every local church. Uh, Whatever else a local church aims at, it certainly should be the steady progress of its members in the Scriptures. There should be a basic biblical competence that is ever increasing. So this is a community committed to hearing, believing, and responding to the Word of God. Now, notice the result of that. So, they gather, they're together, uh, they hear the Word, and they respond. Notice what the result of all of this is. It is ultimately joy, but not initially. Uh, Initially, we are told that the reading and proclamation of the Word of God results in mourning and weeping. And sometimes scripture does this. When we see the discrepancy between our life and the will of God, when we see how we fall short of his will, the result is often that scripture pierces us, grieves us, and causes us to turn from sin. But interestingly, in this passage, the leaders come to the people and they say, no, no, weeping and mourning is inappropriate. This is a feast day. This is a day that's holy or consecrated to God. This is a day of rejoicing. This day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. There's this intriguing connection between this day is set apart for God, and so sadness is not appropriate. If something is set apart for God, that's a time to rejoice. There's a sense in which if you're in the presence of God, tears are not permissible in a sense. His presence is a presence of life and joy. And this feast is meant to be a time of celebration. Now we recognize in this life there are going to be tears along the way. We're going to grieve over our failures and sins. We're going to confess and repent. But note this. Tears are a passing thing. Sorrow, a guilty conscience, these things are passing. Joy is eternal. To be in the presence of God is to know joy. So on this day of... The consecrated feast, weeping is inappropriate. It's a time of rejoicing. The leaders tell them to go eat rich food, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and give portions to others. Go and celebrate. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a fascinating verse. The idea seems to be that those who rejoice in God are invigorated by that joy, rejuvenated by it. Now this is tremendously relevant to an audience full of weary people. Uh, Perhaps one of the the reasons we're often so ground down and weary, maybe it's overwork, address that if you can. But we, we notice that sadness, grimness, takes a toll on our energy. It saps us of our strength. At the same time, those who rejoice in God, who delight themselves in the Lord, are invigorated; they have strength. Could it be that one reason we're not more there's not more vitality is because we're not sufficiently joyful? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Notice why they rejoice, verse twelve. So they go on their way. This is not a time for uh, weeping and crying. This is a time for joy. Notice why, verse twelve, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Why were they rejoicing? Because they had encountered God as He had revealed Himself in Scripture. That's what made this occasion. It wasn't the rich food, it wasn't the wine, it was the fact that they enjoyed the wine of God's presence. They were intoxicated by His truth. That's what brought them joy on this occasion. And Scripture teaches us to see a tight connection between joy and God's word. Look at Psalm 19, for example. Psalm 19, verse eight. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Those who devote themselves to the law of the Lord, who meditate upon it, are also people whose heart overflows with gladness. It's a kind of intuitive thing, right? We don't tend to think of joy and scripture as being connected in this way but according to scripture they are. And the reason they are is because in scripture we get not just information, but in scripture we encounter God himself. When with the eyes of faith we see the glory of God in the pages of scripture, our hearts soar with happiness and gladness. To pursue a knowledge of God in scripture and to pursue joy are opposite sides of the same coin. Do you believe that? All of us want to be joyful. All of of us want deep spiritual satisfaction. The trouble with many of us is we're pursuing those things in the wrong places. We're pursuing it in romantic relationships, the pleasures of the body, good food and drink. We're pursuing it in productive, satisfying work. We're, We're pursuing joy in money. And all of those things will ultimately fail to satisfy us and provide what we're looking for. Joy comes from being in the presence of God and his presence is mediated to us through his word. Understanding that word causes our hearts to sink. Obeying that word causes our hearts to sink. That's the final thing we notice. Hearing and understanding makes them rejoice. Obeying makes them rejoice. On the second day, the leaders gather together, the heads of the fathers' households, and they continue to study the law. And they see that there's another festival, the Feast of Booths, that's, that's required by the law. Uh, So they decide that they're going to observe it. Uh, This feast was a harvest celebration, a time of giving thanks to God for, uh, it would have taken place October, November, late October, November. Uh, This is when the olives and the grapes would have come in. This is when the the thanks would have been offered for God's good gifts and wine. Uh, But more significantly, this was also a time when Israel remembered the Lord's provision to his people in the wilderness. After God saved Israel from Egypt He took them to the promised land through the wilderness, and they lived in tents or, you know, these makeshift uh, dwellings. And this was a time to remember God's faithfulness to the Israelites in the past. And this celebration would have lasted a week. And basically, you lived out of doors for a week. Uh, You had these little makeshift houses with a thatched roof. It must have been a lot of fun for the kids. Every night, you're under the stars. This was a time of tremendous celebration, joy, and delight. And we're told that that's precisely what they experience. As they obey the law, there was very great rejoicing. Notice the effect of submitting themselves to the word of God in every detail, joy. We need to recognize this because the the lie that has been told from the beginning is that if you want personal fulfillment, happiness, then you have to break free of the shackles of the word of God, Genesis 3. The serpents lie. Human fulfillment and joy comes from rebelling against the law of the Lord. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, believed and fell. It's the lie that many continue to believe. If I do what I want, I'm going to experience life in abundance. No, you'll experience death, sorrow, and alienation from God. But those who submit themselves to the word of God, who believe it and obey it, experience not a contraction of life, but an enhancement of life. Joy and abundance of life is found to those who walk in the ways of the Lord. I'm not saying the ways of the Lord are easy. Obedience is frequently hard. It involves self-renunciation. But on the other side of that self-renunciation, there is joy. So this passage passage challenges all of us this morning to ask ourselves, what is my attitude towards Scripture? How do I view it? How do you view it? Uh, is, is the word of God your joy? The thing that sustains you? You turn to God and say, Lord, thank you for a light in dark places, thank you for scripture. Does it bring you delight? Or if you're being honest, you look at God's word and say it's just kind of an, an old book, frequently lifeless in my experience, with seemingly very little to say to me today. If that's where you are, let me invite you to pray what the psalmist prays in Psalm 119 verse 18. The psalmist says to God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. God, give me eyes to see you and your son Jesus in scripture. Let me see the glory that is there, the riches that are there. If you've neglected God's word, confess that to him. Say God, forgive me for neglecting such a great gift. Have mercy on me and help me to delight myself in your word because that's the place in which I encounter you. This passage is a call to all of us to seek God by seeking his word, amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so also our souls pant for you and the truth of your word. Through your spirit incline our hearts to pursue you and meditation on your word day after day. Lord, we pray for the community that we love, CBC, and ask that our community would be less and less conformed to the foolish values of this present world and more and more conformed to the wisdom of Holy Scripture. Work in our midst, Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and grant us to be a people marked by a passion to hear your word and obey it, amen.